and welcome to the April edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme, I'll be speaking to Rachel Grunwald, who is the Director of Programming at JW3, to find out where we're at with regards to the centre hopefully reopening. I'm John Kay, and I'll be talking to William Tyler about Germany in the immediate aftermath of 1945. We'll be discussing the Fourth Reich to denazification from 1945 onwards. I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be talking to Rafi Mendelssohn from My Heritage, who have just brought out a new product called Deep Nostalgia, where they take still photographs and, with modern technology, animate them to make them move. I'm Kate Fulton and I'm going to be finding out how to declutter your life with the help of Rebecca Saltzman from Balagan Begone. And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month, courtesy of Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, Senior Rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the past month's Jewish news, I'm Vivian Krieger. Israel will probably have to wait and see if Benjamin Netanyahu can form a new government after the fourth poll in two years left him seemingly short of an outright coalition. His party, Likud, is still the biggest party by a long way with around 30 seats. When other seats are factored in, such as the ones for United Torah Judaism and the hardline Religious Zionism, predictions are that Mr Netanyahu will still be short of a governing majority. In the continuing deadlock, there could yet be another election this summer. Here, the Labour leader has said he's pleased with the progress made so far in his fight against what he called the stain of anti-Semitism. Sir Keir Starmer sent a video message just before Pesach in which he thanked the Jewish community for giving him the opportunity to repair, deepen and reinforce the relationship, whilst also thanking everyone for their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He mentioned volunteering to help with the vaccination effort and other acts of kindness by the community. The spokesman for the Muslim Council of Britain has had to apologise for an online post comparing Israel to the Nazis. Mikhtar Verzi was tweeting about Dennis Goldberg, the leading anti-apartheid campaigner who died nearly a year ago. He described Mr Goldberg as a strong supporter of Palestinian rights who made the Nazi comparison in relation to Israel's oppression – Mr Goldberg never made such a comparison. Mr Verzi deleted his tweet and then insisted he'd made a mistake, later saying he was genuinely sorry. Barrister Robert Rinder, the TV personality known as Judge Rinder, has said he feels overwhelming sadness, not rage, towards the group of thieves who mugged him in North London, taking his phone. Mr Rinder explained in a tweet that he'd seen where such behaviour led. Metropolitan Police have said their investigation is ongoing, but no arrests have been made. A BBC television series has started, which explores how British Jews mark life's big milestones from birth and coming of age to marriage and the end of life. Twelve-year-old Ethan was shown preparing for his bar mitzvah, while at Bushy Cemetery in Hertfordshire, a woman called Hilary described her role as a volunteer who carries out tahara, the ritual washing of a body before burial. The five-part series will also have stories from Sikhs, Hindus, Christians and Muslims. And finally, the Oscar-nominated actor George Siegel, who sparred with Richard Burton in the film Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, has died. He was 87. He also romanced Glenda Jackson in the 1973 comedy A Touch of Class 
and won more laughs recently in the TV sitcom The Goldbergs, playing the grandfather Albert Pops Solomon. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let us begin the April edition of The Jewish Views with a quick chat now with Rachel Grunwald, who is the Director of Programming at JW3. Now, Rachel, I know that there are going to be people itching to learn, myself included. When? When can we come back to our beloved JW3? Phil, hello. Thank you very much for having me. Last time we spoke, we were sitting in the beautiful lounge, the glass, looking over the piazza in person at JW3. And I'm delighted to say that it really won't be long till we're back there. But first, let me just give you a little story of the last year. So JW3 closed its doors on the 16th of March and pretty much immediately, you know, within 24, 48 hours, we had the beginnings of our programme up online. And so all through the past year, people have, many of the listeners, I hope, been able to engage with us and feel still part of the community over the last year. And whilst all that was happening in cyberspace, we opened up a food bank in our building for uh, local people in need. And we started cooking with volunteers to send hot food also to people in the local community and the Jewish community. So it's a little bit about what we've been doing. And if I'm not very much mistaken, Rachel, one of the largest in the area... Let's not play it down. (laughs) Yes, that's true. We are a hub and I think we have now distributed over 110,000 meals. So yes, it's been an extraordinary feat of volunteering and of Jewish spirit and of partnership. And we're hugely proud of that. As we are of the communities that we have reached and served and engaged and united and inspired during this really difficult time online. But we all know that however wonderful online is, and I should be clear that making an impact remotely working online is part of JW3's future as is for the next couple of years at least, continuing to serve local people in need uh, through the food bank. We know, you know, that being together in a building really is what makes our hearts sing. And I'm really pleased to say that come the 18th of April, we will be open again for children and family activities. In fact, before that, we have holiday camps. As soon as it's allowed by the government, we will start having children back for holiday camps in JW3. And you can check out those through Rising Stars or through Dancing with Louise. Have a look online. That's how you'd book. I think they may already be sold out. But we will be back on Sundays with fun activities for families and children, with family discos, all safely socially distanced. We'll be back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with playgroups, with after-school activities, with street dance, with French classes. And we are really, really looking forward to welcoming families back at that stage. Now, obviously, we have to recognise that there will be some people who could be a little bit nervous, a bit twitchy about the prospect of coming back to a public space. One can only assume that JW3 is, of course, sticking to COVID guidelines and offering people the chance to distance and regular hand washing. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about that. When we reopened in September last year, which we did because we knew there'd be people itching to get back, we worked really, really hard on all of that. So we're not scrabbling around now. We know what we're doing. We have at the moment only entrance from the side gate. We have temperature checks on the way in. We have uh, antibacterial stations all the way around the place. All of the activities are socially distanced. If you came to something in the hall with your family, you would have a taped out area on the floor where you stand and where other people don't stand. There are one-way systems. Anything that's happening in our classroom spaces and our workshops is now happening in much larger spaces and we're going to be using the outdoor space as much as possible. So yes, we have safety foremost in our minds and you'll be pleased to know that later in the summer, we will be opening 
the cinema and opening for cultural activity, for performances, for gigs. And oh, don't hold me to this because I really hope it can happen. But all being well with the government roadmap, then in the Finchley roadmap, we'll have the beach back. Oh, wow. Who could say fairer than that? And if I may just say as well, by the way, if you have yet to experience, and let me make this very clear, Rachel, you will confirm this, I'm not being paid to say this, but anyone who has not experienced the JW3 cinema, please, if you love films, do it. I can't tell you how terrific the JW3 cinema is because it's the way cinemas used to be. It was never about numbers. It was about you, the big screen, a few rows of seats, comfy seats, I might add at that, and it just has such a nice feel about it. So I'm delighted to hear the cinema is opening up again. That's very exciting. And not just open again, but again, fingers crossed, don't hold me to this because so many things are changing in the world. But with any luck, we'll be relaunching our cinema programme with the annual Serret Israeli Film and TV Festival and also by resuming our in-person partnership with those wonderful partners, UK Jewish Film. So, yes, come back to our comfy seats. You'll be safe. It'll be wonderful. Fantastic. And, of course, if anyone wants any more information on any of the plans that JW3 has in store and what is coming up throughout the summer programme, then you can always go to jw3.org.uk. Rachel Grunwald, Director of Programming at JW3, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Phil. And to everybody listening, we really look forward to having you back soon. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. After Hitler's suicide at the end of April 1945, Admiral Donitz became the second and last Fuhrer. His administration lasted a week until a full surrender was finalised. The Allies immediately initiated a denazification programme. The Russians, well, their plans were slightly different. There's a talk at JW3 on Thursday the 15th of April called Germany in the immediate aftermath of 1945, the Fourth Reich to denazification. And it's being given by William Tyler, MBE, and he joins us on Jewish Views. Can you tell us, Mr. Tyler, first of all, that situation immediately following the Second World War? Did the Allies and the Russians have specific plans as to where to push Germany? And were those plans very different? Yes, I think they did. It was very different. The interesting thing is that when both the Allies and the Russians were in Berlin, the Allies, of course, coming in second after the Russians had stormed Berlin, the ordinary Russian and Allied troops actually got on well. Fraternised would be the word to use. But it very soon became quite political, because although the intention was to divide Berlin into four parts, British, American, French and Russian, the Russians very quickly were not going to play ball and it became very obvious. And we all know what happens in the end. The whole country, as well as Berlin, divides into two, into an Allied sector and into a Russian sector. In the Allied sector, the whole push was to put Germany back, if you like, on the straight and narrow as a democratic state as it was during the Weimar Republic. And so there were attempts, well, not just attempts made, but successful attempts made to do that. For example, there was a complete change in the structure of trade unions, which had been banned under the Nazis. And that was very much a British innovation and incentive. The sad thing to note is, although we did it for West Germany, we didn't do it for Britain. 
hence the difficulties we were to have decades later. We also entered into their education system, and, and there were some very fine results achieved, particularly by the British, and again, we never learned from those and never did it ourselves. But the Russians had quite a different idea. The Russians was a fight of ideologies between Leninist Marxism, Marxist-Leninism, and Nazism. And they were determined that in their area, which we now call East Germany, in East Germany, they were going to establish a socialist Marxist state. And in doing so, they introduced a denazification program, which led many ex-Nazis to flee to the West, where the West were more indulgent, in a sense, um, indulgent to Nazis who'd been running big factories and industrial enterprises on behalf of, of the Third Reich and indeed of Nazis who were in positions of power. For example, people like the intelligence services were re-employed. Now, in the East, they were very, very careful to get rid of all the Nazis. And they had a notorious brown book in which they listed every Nazi that had not yet been caught or they knew where they were, in, the, in East Germany. So there was a very different approach, and there was a different approach in the schools. It was a very much a pro-Marxist-Leninism approach and anti-Nazi, obviously. In the West, it's anti-Nazi, but democratic Germany comes to terms with Nazism in a different way that the Soviets did in the East. After all, in the East, Russia is right to the very end in 1989. It's Russia that's pulling the strings, while West Germany is, has by 1989 developed into a perfectly normal democratic state of Western Europe. So there's huge differences. Well, of course, in West Germany, they came up with this federal system, which meant that there wasn't a lot of power invested centrally, whereas in East Germany, one would think it became a very repressive state and the Stasi, the secret police, became notorious, almost perhaps using methods that the Nazis may have used some, some years previously. Absolutely right. The, the, the East was a regime of horror, really, for ordinary citizens. It must have been absolutely dreadful. The, on the other hand, things like education were extremely good if you miss out the bits that might be political, like history in itself, if you like. Things like sport and so on was extremely well-funded in the East, but it was a dreadful police state with the Stasi. And that is one of the worst, it's one of the worst examples of a police state, frankly, is East Germany. Now, in the West, there's a federal approach because that was the approach that there had always been during the Second Reich when Germany was unified in 1870 because they had to protect the rights of the individual states. And that continued. There was only one change that the Allies made and they got rid of Prussia. Prussia, which they saw, correctly saw, as the heartbeat of militarism in Germany, they simply expunge from the map. Elsewhere, all the other states continue in a federal structure. And that, that was, of course, a federal structure is something the Americans were very familiar with anyhow, alien to France and Britain, but it was seen as it was seen as going back to a model under the Weimar, at least under the Weimar Republic, that had worked in a sense. 
I've been watching that TV series Deutschland '89, oh, so uh, which you know comes up to the period of the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. I mean, there were those that had hoped that somehow the Soviet Union would intervene and and protect the East German state, and it might continue as an independent state. But it, it as we know, it was all over. That, that, that horse had bolted from the stable a long time before, and the Russians were never going to do that, because if so, it brought them up face to face with Western Europe, with NATO, and the, the, the Russians had been, well, since the formation of NATO after the Second World War, the, the Russians had been fixated. On NATO. And the, the reason is quite clear. What they wanted, and, and Stalin achieved, to give him credit in 1945, were buffer states between themselves and the West. And what Putin has panicked over is the lack of buffer states between Russia and the West. And, and he's horrified at the growth, has been horrified at the growth of NATO. Um, and certainly doesn't want to see any increases in NATO membership along his border any more than has happened already, because he sees that as a direct threat. This is the Russians have always seen. This is nothing new. This goes back to Peter the Great and before a fear of the West coming in to Holy Mother Russia. There was no way, I think, in even if times have been normal, I don't think the Russians would have in any sense of have triggered or or got into a position where they might have triggered open warfare with the west over over east germany by 1989 they, they simply wouldn't have done and and in the situation they were in in russia itself they they weren't in a position to anyhow well the talk is called germany in the immediate aftermath of 1945 it's on thursday the 15th of april at half past 10 in the morning it's on zoom so it means our guest William Tyler can stay in Worthing and doesn't have to travel to Finchley <laughs> Road. JW3.org.uk is where you can find out more about it. It's £20. And actually, it's quite a long session, isn't it, by the looks of things? It, it is. We, we take a couple of short coffee breaks in the middle, but we go through to one o'clock. So we stop rigidly at one o'clock so people can, <laughs> people can have their lunch on and know it. they'll be free at one. Yeah. Excellent. William Tyler, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Jewish Views. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. My guest is Rafi Mendelssohn from My Heritage, who have brought out a product called Deep Nostalgia. Rafi, welcome to The Jewish Views and thank you for coming onto the programme. For those of you who are not aware, firstly, please tell us about My Heritage. Sure. So MyHeritage is a platform to help users make discoveries about their family history. It's very global with you know, over 60 million users around the world available in 42 languages. And people can come to the platform and build their trees and collaborate with 52 million other trees that our users have created, as well as search for their relatives and find their information about their relatives across over 13 billion historical records that have been digitized and made searchable. And so we're all about helping people make those uh, discoveries about their family history. And Deep Nostalgia, what is that? Deep Nostalgia is a feature on MyHeritage that allows people to upload still images of their ancestors 
often black and white or maybe the resolution isn't so good but uh, you know the images of our of our relatives and it essentially animates them it uses artificial intelligence to bring them to life when you upload the still image it applies a few different technologies to make their head move from side to side their eyes blink their smile back at you as well a few different options of different types of animations but they are essentially bringing them to life or giving them another aspect of appreciation we also colorize and enhance the images as well so they're much clearer and it allows us greater connection with our ancestors how did you come up with the idea the nostalgia is i suppose the continuation of a few different features that we've launched in the last year focused specifically on images images is such an important gateway into our family history discovery journey and so we introduced technology last year that colorizes images we also launched features that enhances it these are all machine learning algorithms and so just a couple of weeks ago we launched deep nostalgia which is a continuation of that and takes it another stage further and we see lots of people taking the images of their families especially over the last year those who have been going through their uh, their lofts and their cupboards clearing out and finding all of those old images and old archives and so they're now uploading them and, and able to appreciate their family members. How accurate are the pictures once deep nostalgia has been applied? The enhancement and colorization firstly kicks in. You upload your image and it all just takes a few seconds. But during those few seconds, there's enhancement colorization, which really improves the actual image. And then the animation itself utilizes essentially what's called a driver, which is really an animation of a colleague of mine at my heritage and a recording of his face, and he is moving his face from side to side and smiling and doing the actions that is then placed on the image underneath. So obviously this is not your ancestor who's moving, this is a driver that is leading the image and is showing the underlying technology that shows the movements that you see in front of you. As a consumer, is there anything that I would need to do to the photograph before I put it onto your system? Absolutely nothing. You just upload the image. It just takes a couple of seconds. You can either do it through the app or on the on the site. And it's very easy to use. In fact, the first few are for free. And so there's absolutely nothing you need to do. But what's been amazing is seeing the reaction of our users all around the world. And in just over two, two and a half weeks, we've had over 50 million animations, which has been incredible. We've seen on social media as well the response from people all around the world who have gone from being quite emotional and seeing loved ones or seeing people maybe they never met, but also as well people using it for history in general, uploading it for pictures and artworks or statues. We saw the Natural History Museum applied it to their Neanderthal exhibition. And so we see all around the world, the reaction has been incredible. If I've got a group photograph, say there's an old wedding photograph, does deep nostalgia animate all the people at the same time or does it separate each person in the group? It separates each person. So it takes the image, it recognises each person, each face. It enhances and colourises the whole image but then allows you to scroll through and click the different faces themselves because that's specifically for deep nostalgia. That's the interesting part is the, the animation of the face. And so you can upload an image of lots of people in the same image and then you'll be able to choose the different faces and then see each of the animations separately. Each person individually. I've had a look at some of the pictures and in the pictures people are turning their heads slightly but does deep nostalgia have to invent pixels to make up the missing sections like let's say an ear for example? Yeah so it slightly does that and it applies both machine learning technologies to improve it but 
really it's the artificial intelligence that is technology that MyHeritage has licensed from an Israeli company called DID, and they specialize in facial reenactment. And it's that technology, but really when you upload it, it's just a couple of seconds and all of that technology takes place at the same time. And are the movements authentic or are they a bit sort of like you sometimes see on old films where they get a bit pixelated and a bit jerky? Yeah, so they're not pixelated or jerky, and that's because the drivers that we've recorded have been very slow and slow-paced, but gently moving. But we've had great reaction, but also some of the feedback has been that they want different kinds of animations, maybe our relatives smiling for longer. And so we're actually in the process of recording additional options. So as you animate your loved ones, you can choose different kind of expressions and different reactions as well, which should make it even more fun and engaging. I must say, I did have a look at some of the pictures on there, and it's quite eerie. I mean, although they weren't my relatives, I still felt it was quite eerie seeing some old black and white photographs from 1920s or whatever, where dead people are coming to life, but also very fascinating as well. What sort of feedback have you had? It's just been incredible. There's been such a wide range of people really appreciative of being able to remember their loved ones, even just for just a few seconds. We've had history teachers get in touch with us saying that they're going to use it for their students in class to give them a greater appreciation. For a younger generation, it's kind of like a selfie of these historical characters and bringing it to life. So that's been hugely uh, interesting. What's been amazing is that there's been such a wide range of different kinds of people that have used it. We launched it at a genealogy conference, a virtual conference this year, and the reaction was amazing. But then after a few days, it went viral on TikTok. And so the reaction there was similarly amazing. And so what's been incredible is seeing all these different groups of people, all these different ages, but equally appreciative and understanding of the way that this technology and the way that deep nostalgia can be applied to essentially allow us to connect with our loved ones and historical figures in a different, greater way. You mentioned historical figures. I did notice on one you had Bonaparte and I think Mozart, and that was quite eerie to watch, especially as there were no moving images of these people anyway. Exactly. So, and to see it applied on classical paintings as well, classical painters and, and images sometimes 200 years old is quite incredible. And so for those people, there is no footage of them. There's no way of seeing any of the ways that they moved. And so to be able to apply this technology and to be able to give us some appreciation and maybe understanding of what they looked like from that different dimension has been wonderful. So this is artificial intelligence and modern technology at its best. It's not only cutting-edge technology of today and tomorrow, but it's being applied in a way that gives us a greater appreciation of yesterday, which I think is the thing that's most exciting for us. And every day at MyHeritage, we're excited about helping people make connections with their family history, with their heritage. And so to be able to develop new technology, as we've always done, to give people that appreciation of the past, and then even more so to see the reaction of people and the way that people have taken to it has just been excellent. Now, can anybody use this service? You did mention before that people can upload a certain amount for free, I think you said. But can anybody use the service or do they need to have an account with MyHeritage? Yes, Deep Nostalgia feature is free for people to use for the first few animations. You just have to go to the myheritage.com slash deep nostalgia site. You can also use it on the app. It will ask you for your email address and to register. And then you're able to animate and download and share with your loved ones. And I think that's also what we're seeing as well. People who are using it, sharing it with their family members. And that's starting a conversation, both in terms of what other images and records, archives that they have in the family, but also what are the stories behind those images. And that's sparking such interesting conversations between families.
I know you've mentioned it already, but once again, what is the address they go to? Yep, so it's myheritage.com slash deep dash nostalgia. Rafi, that has been absolutely interesting. I must say, I enjoyed looking at the pictures on the site, and I did upload a couple of pictures. They were of me, unfortunately, because I was trying to search through, and I wanted to have a look and see how it worked. Absolutely brilliant. It was quite eerie seeing me in a still picture blink and smile and stuff. Yeah, well, I think the tool itself, the feature itself, is the intention is for our ancestors and not for living people. So I think if you're staring at yourself, then it might be a little bit strange. But the intention and the feature is to be used for our ancestors. Rafi, thank you very much for coming on the programme today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. If, like me, you do tend to collect stuff and you have too many things around you, maybe a, a cluttered home, you could say, we have just the person, Rebecca Saltzman, who lives in Israel and is bringing out a book soon called The Organised Jewish Life is here to talk about decluttering both now and during festivals. Now, Rebecca, you're the owner of Balagan Be Gone. What exactly is it? And tell us what a Balagan actually is. Thanks for having me, Kate. I'm so glad to be here. Balagan is the Hebrew word for chaos or disorder. And I was looking for a catchy name when I still lived in New York before we moved to Israel. And it just struck me, like, it just seemed like the perfect word and and here in Israel we use that word so freely oh it's a balagan because everything here is a balagan sometimes so but we want it to be gone what what exactly do we want gone so you know I come to people's houses and I wave my magic wand and I say balagan be gone and magically everybody's house is organized no I wish I wish it was that simple what I help people do is I help people declutter and I help people get rid of the excess things in their lives that are holding them back from living their best life and I help them curate their best collection of stuff gosh that's quite interesting do you so you believe that people having too much stuff around them can somehow hold them back in in their work or in their personal life or what is it what, what do you mean by that Pirkei Avot says, more possessions, more worry. So even on a subconscious level, sometimes we're really worried about all the stuff that we have and it can overtake us. And a lot of times what happens is we have so much stuff that we end up working for our stuff instead of our stuff working for us. And the stuff just starts to overtake us. And there's always something to tidy. There's always something to clean. And when you have less there's less to tidy and there's, it's easier to clean. Yes, that's, that is very true. So somebody, somebody sort of looks around their house and feels, it's a little bit like, I was wondering if, if like a fish isn't aware that it's in water, how, do we, how are we aware that we are in amongst too much clutter? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I think what happens is, is the pressure just starts to build up and it starts to feel like, so a lot of people, when they are in the midst of a lot of clutter, they, they are just coping. And then all of a sudden the coping mechanisms don't work anymore. And the pressure from having so much stuff, it just reaches sort of a breaking point and people are like, I need help. And I think it's like with any other thing that people have problems with, like when they want to lose weight or eat healthier or whatever it is, it's like you just reached a a breaking point and that's what propels you forward. So a little bit like 
Marie Kondo and her sparking joy from the tidiness. I suppose you're compared to her a lot. <laughs> I, I am, yeah. So a lot of her methods are based in Shintoism in terms of like thinking the things and things like that. I actually like to focus on the benefit of the reduction rather than the reduction itself. So when you let things go, you make space and room for abundance to come into your life. Because if you want new and better things to come into your life, you have to leave a space for them or else where will they go? So, okay. I mean, on a practical level, I feel I've got, I'm talking about me, could be anybody, too much stuff around me. I've amassed presence. I've got bulging cupboards and whatever else bulges around the house and I call you up and I say help what do you, what do you do then how does it how does the magic work if we're working together in person I I help you declutter in person like we go through each and everything but you literally actually, open each drawer we literally mm -hmm. open each drawer yeah but actually I have really effective online coaching methods and I even have decluttering pod groups online where it's like 10 or 12 or 15 women and they're all decluttering together and everybody is gaining from each other, you know, a lot of insight into themselves and seeing what other problems is, what other people's problems are. And they feel a lot less lonely than if they were doing it by themselves because somebody else is also like in that same position with them. So the decluttering groups, I call them power hours, are really very effective because it's the group, you know, give and take that happens. And each person in the group is getting individualized attention. So they turn their camera on, they show me their space. I say, oh, well, you can lay it out like this or you can lay it out like that. And this could go there. And I really... I actually have an incredible memory for spaces. So over the weeks, I can remember like, oh, well, maybe you could actually move that into the other room. So people can work with me in a lot of ways. And, and it's really, the thing is, is that most people just need some accountability and someone to say, do this, do that. And it's okay to let things go. And, and it's the yeah. permission that you give yourself or that someone else can give you that helps you move forward. What would you say would be a good tactic to avoid actually amassing so much stuff in the first place? I mean, people come for dinner, they buy you little tatskis, bits and pieces, and you, you've got, what do you do? Should you say, actually, thank you, but please don't take it past the front door because yeah. I do not need another sweet dish or whatever it is. It's very difficult because then they expect to see it when they come. And you, right. it, we are such socially conditioned animals to bring one another little gifts and trinkets. If I am expecting someone, let's say for dinner, which, you know, that hasn't happened in a while, but <laughs> in the old days, was, yeah, in the old days, I would be specific with them with what I wanted. Like if someone asks, oh, can I bring something? Then I actually say yes. And I tell them what I want, because this way I'll get specifically what I need for dinner. Let's say, oh, yes, you're coming for dinner. Okay, please bring fruit for dinner. And then this way, they're feeling like they're contributing. And I'm not leaving it up to chance that I might get something that I don't really want or can't serve or, or something like that. So this way, everybody feels like they're a little more involved and it makes everybody feel a little bit better. But I think the key really is, is not feeling guilt about letting go of something that isn't serving you anymore. And we are excellent at saying to ourselves, I have to keep this because so-and-so is going to come to my house. And and it's okay to be like, oops, I dropped it by mistake. It broke. <laughs> yeah. Or, you well, know, if like, grandma gave it to you or something, some, some, a lot of our possessions are vested with emotion. 
and with antiquity. Sentimental items are a, a totally different category. I encourage people to keep sentimental items and use them or display them because there's really no point in having sentimental items if, if you're not using them or you're not getting some sort of benefit from them. Holding them in a box where you never look at them, where you never see them, it doesn't serve you in any way. So what what's the yeah. point of holding on to it? Things are meant to be used. If they're not being used, then you can let them go to somebody who will use them and pass, pass the blessing on to somebody else. Love that. Pass the blessing on. I remember that. <laughs> I just want to look at um, a Passover, Pesach. Okay. That's a time that people do get themselves into their own balagam. Yeah. How can we, I mean, you've got you've got you cooking, you've got guests coming if, if you're allowed to, you've got hummets that you've got to get rid of, and you do open those cupboards that you've maybe not touched for a year, and people get themselves into a complete tiz. How do you uh, go about advising people? The most important thing you can do is first declutter before. <laughs> so I actually run a pre-Passover decluttering challenge every year for 36 days to help people declutter so that cleaning is easier. And I really believe that when you declutter, it makes it easier to clean. But the most important thing you can do with Passover is figure out what is the priority and then schedule all the tasks that you need to do in advance so that you know when everything is happening. And this way, if something happens, you're able to flex or pivot so that you can move freely in case you need to switch, because so many times people overschedule themselves, not realizing exactly how long a task takes. So it comes down to really good time management skills. And so much of organization is about managing your time properly. And I think that when you learn how to have good time management skills, it makes preparation for any holiday much, much, much easier. Absolutely. You're based in, you're based in Israel. And yeah. if we want to get hold of you, how do we how do we do that? And are you available on Zoom? Yeah, I am available on Zoom. I love WhatsApp. You can call me on WhatsApp. You can head to my website, balagambigan.com. You can go to my Facebook group, Organizing in Israel, which you don't have to live in Israel to join, but it's really a great group. And we talk about all these kinds of things, like how to get ready for holidays and things like that. And you can follow me on Instagram or check out my weekly podcast, Journey to Organization. Perfect. We shall do that. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, senior rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. Hans was a very special man when I met him. He actually came to my synagogue for an argument. He wanted to argue about God, to question everything about Judaism to get upset about the illogical bits of the Torah. And he'd fallen out with his last rabbi for being too argumentative. Hans and I got to know each other and we clicked because I love the debate and questioning in Judaism and he enjoyed a rabbi who was delighted to be disagreed with. His story came out. As a child, Hans had grown up in Holland. During the Nazi period, he and his family had been hidden in a basement in the home of an extraordinarily courageous non-Jewish family friend for three years. His grandfather had died in that basement. Hans had every right to be argumentative with rabbis and the Judaism they represented. Years went on 
and Hans became one of the people who speak with great effect to youngsters around the country about his experiences as a Jew under Nazism. Hans was honoured by the Dutch government and laid a wreath in Amsterdam at the country's commemoration of Holocaust Memorial Day. As years continued, Hans's ability to communicate was smothered by dementia. I lost my religious sparring partner and his family had to deal with a special man becoming a shell of his former self. Then lockdown came last year and I happened to visit his family and of course we spoke about how they were coping in lockdown. They were also deeply aware of Hans's experiences. Hans's son said this to me, never forget that we're doing this lockdown and we're living in these restricted times without the constant fear of the knock on the door, without fear of our neighbours, without fear of taking a moment outdoors. We'll get through this. As springtime begins to release us from Covid and lockdown, we know a little more the heart of the hidden, the heart of those imprisoned for their beliefs or ethnicity, of those who knew the streets and the markets to be unsafe. Multiply that by a hundred, hundred times and maybe we can begin to feel the courage and tenacity of those who lived through the Holocaust on this week of Yom HaShoah. Thank you to Rabbi Mark Goldsmith of Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue there with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, Rachel Grunwald, William Tyler, MBE, Rafi Mendelssohn and Rebecca Saltzman. And of course, we must also say thank you to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast application. That way you'll be able to hear when new editions become available. And of course, you'll be able to hear from our extensive archive here at The Jewish Views. For any more information on any of the guests we've featured, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. But from me, Phil, Dave and the whole team, including John Kay, Kate Fulton and Tony Honigberg. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this month's edition of The Jewish Views and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.